You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Welcome to episode 52 of the GDPR Weekly Show. And as regular listeners will know, I like to start off with a shout out to our new listeners. And this week we have new listeners in London, Derby, Warrington, Oxford, Cardiff, Guildford, Bristol, Wakefield, Portsmouth, Birmingham, Nottingham, Southampton, Derby, Lancaster, Doncaster, Coventry, Leeds, York, Durham and Belfast, all in the UK. Then we have listeners from Leinster, County Wexford and Leith in Ireland, from Paris and Vaucluse in France, from Alicante, Barcelona and Madrid in Spain, from East Flanders and Haino in Belgium, from Amsterdam, Rotterdam, La Hague and Gelderland in the Netherlands, from Hamburg, Frankfurt and Baden in Germany, from Copenhagen, South Denmark and Central Jutland in Denmark, from Oslo in Norway, from Stockholm and Uppsala in Sweden, from Geneva and Bern in Switzerland, from Vienna in Austria, Zagreb in Croatia, Montenegro, Serbia, Bucharest in Romania, Istanbul in Turkey, Moscow, Shelyabinsk, Krasnodorsky Krai in Russia, Marrakesh in Morocco, Cape Town in South Africa, Delhi in India, Seoul in South Korea, Tokyo in Japan, Adelaide, Melbourne, Perth in Australia, Sao Paulo in Brazil, Quebec in Canada, and then in the USA we have new listeners this week from Anchorage in Alaska, our first visitors in Alaska, so a big welcome to you, Anchorage in Alaska, Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, Texas, Massachusetts, Minnesota, Virginia, New Jersey, Connecticut and Michigan, all in the USA. So once again, a great set of new listeners from right around the world. Great to see the international attention and the listeners here at home, of course. And a big welcome to you. I hope you enjoy the GDPR Weekly Show. You find it a useful uh, 30 minutes. And of course, a big shout out to, to all my regular listeners for taking the time to take 30 minutes or so out of your week to catch up on the latest news in the world of GDPR. I hope you find all the uh, articles and episodes interesting and entertaining. Um, please let me know if you have any feedback. You can send any feedback to podcasts at insurety.co.uk. That's E-N-S-U-R-E-T-Y.co.uk. Podcasts at insurety.co.uk. Or just go to our website at www.insurety.co.uk and go to the podcast page where you'll find more information about the GDPR Weekly Show podcasts. And in just a few moments, I'll be telling you what's coming up in this week's edition of the GDPR Weekly Show. Check us out on Facebook. So, coming up in this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show, we have news of a data breach at West Berkshire Council. We have an update on the criminal case in Bulgaria regarding their large data breach. We have a look at the vulnerability of personal data in the three fun group dating app we have news of a data breach at air new zealand affecting their loyalty scheme we have news of the irish data commissioner commencing investigations into data handling of twitter 
we have details of a PIN number data breach for a newcomer bank, Monzo Bank. Then we have an article which says, has it become easier to access other people's data now that GDPR is in place? And finally, we have the results of a survey on how firms are coping with GDPR and in particular with satisfying data subject access requests. So all that coming up in this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Those of you who've attended our GDPR training will know that we make mention of the fact that a data breach doesn't need to be a criminal act or doesn't need to be something that's uh, big necessarily. It can be as simple as making a mistake in the CC of an email. And indeed, that's exactly what's happened this week to West Berkshire Council. Um, They are currently investigating a data breach after the personal details of residents were accidentally distributed by one of the officers in their housing service. The officer emailed approximately 30 people to their personal addresses about an assisted housing bid, but used the CC of the email rather than the BCC. One recipient replied to the officer, meaning that her response was sent to all the addresses included in the email. One person included in the chain told the local newspaper, the Newbury Weekly News, I'm still shocked that this could happen. West Berkshire Council holds so much sensitive info that breaches like this where our personal email addresses are shared between persons unknown should never happen. I do feel we should know that our personal information is safe in West Berkshire Council's hands. Well, of course, I understand that man or lady being upset about what happened. Indeed, it is a data breach. But to hear from the council, the council spokeswoman, Petra Stoddart-Crompton, said, The housing service escalated the issue to the council's data protection officer as soon as it was discovered as per council policy. In line with GDPR requirements, the breach was assessed within 72 hours to identify whether it met the threshold for escalation to the Information Commissioner's Office. In this case, the breach was not a result of malicious action, hacking or cyber attack, was limited in scope, did not present a serious risk of detriment to the data subjects concerned, and did not involve any sensitive or special trackery data, so no further regulatory action was deemed necessary. The incident will be subject of internal investigation, which we hope means it's going to be recorded in uh, West Berkshire Council's data breach register and just to say that if we had been the dpo for west berkshire council which we're not but we are dpo for a number of local authorities our response would have been exactly the same as that from west berkshire council and in an instance such as this it is a data breach it is very important that it is recorded in the data breach register but in reality that's all that needs to happen there really is no need to escalate it any further or certainly no need to report it to the Information Commissioner's Office. And I think this is where a lot of people get confused. They think that every data breach has to be reported to the ICO and that's most definitely not the case. So if it's just a minor data breach like this, just make sure you record it in your data breach register. And if you're not sure what I mean when I say data breach register, then you really should take part of our training. So please do get in touch with us and we'd be delighted to uh, to help you with that. 
You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, you may remember us talking a few weeks ago about a significant data breach in Bulgaria. And news has come out of Sofia in Bulgaria this week that the owner of a Bulgarian cybersecurity company has been sent back into custody by a court on Thursday as part of an investigation into the nation's biggest data breach. The court said that TAD Group owner Ivan Todorov, accused of instigating last month's attack on the state tax agency, the NRA, that compromised millions of Bulgarians' personal data and financial records, was a serious public danger. Last week, he had been detained by the border police at Sofia Airport, but released on bail of 100,000 levs, which is about 57,000 US dollars. Prosecutors on Thursday said they had enough evidence of Todorov's involvement in the unprecedented cyber attack and urged his remand in custody. Mr Todorov denies any wrongdoing. Prosecutors said there is a recording from security cameras in the TAS Group office where Mr Todorov can be heard commenting on the phone about the data breach. A few days after the attack, police raided the offices of TAD Group, searching premises and seizing computers. Mr Todorov's lawyers, Ina Lochiva, said after the court ruling that the magistrates had misinterpreted part of the evidence and they felt that Mr Todorov had only been sent to prison to appease the public. Last month, the prosecutors in Bulgaria also charged two other workers at TAD Group, Christian Boykov, a 20-year-old cybersecurity employee, and Georgi Yankov, a manager, both with terrorism. Both deny any wrongdoing. They have been conditionally released from custody, but banned from leaving Bulgaria. We will continue to keep an eye on this case because it does involve a large number of records, and also it would be interesting to see how some of the administrations that previously could have been considered lax in terms of data control are now being quite tough on their enforcement of GDPR. So as I say, we will bring you updates on this case in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Security testing company Pentest Partners found a significant lack of security in group dating app 3Fun. Pentest Partners found that anyone could find the personal information, chat data, private photos and real-time location data of any of 3Fun's 1.5 million users. A spokesman for Pentest Partners said that 3Fun was probably the worst security for any dating app we've ever seen. Uh, We have been able to independently verify the vulnerability and confirm with Pentest Partners' findings. The discovery comes as dating apps are facing renewed scrutiny over the amounts of intensely personal information they hold about their users. 3Fun are by far the first dating app to have security problems. There have been data breaches in Jewish dating app JCrush, in conservative dating app Donald Datas, and in Coffee Meets Bagel. And there are ongoing concerns over Chinese continued ownership of Grindr. Pentest Partners security researchers discovered that 3Fund was storing its users' location data in the app itself, rather than keeping it securely on its servers. 
This meant that it was a relatively easy task for anyone to reveal the data on the client side, even when users believed they were restricting their location data. This leak meant that Pentest partners could discover the locations of the three funds users worldwide, where it appeared to find users in the White House, the US Supreme Court and 10 Downing Street, although it's possible that these users were spoofing their locations. It was then able to view these users' birth dates, sexual orientation and even photos of these users, regardless of whether the user had set privacy settings on the photos. The security researchers notified 3Fun about the vulnerability on July the 1st and the company 3Fun have since said that they issued a new version of the app on July the 8th which they say has fixed the security flaws which have been identified. For their part, a spokesman for 3Fun said we take the note seriously and we focus on updating our product to make it safer. If we have any further news on 3Fun, we will, of course, bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Air New Zealand suffered a data breach towards the end of July. Uh, the data breach has exposed the details of around 112,000 of Air New Zealand's customers, specifically those belonging to the AirPoints uh, Air New Zealand loyalty scheme. Air New Zealand is facing questions around how the data breach happened and why it took the company more than nine days to notify customers compromised by a phishing attack. For its part, Air New Zealand says that it contacted the Privacy Commissioner about the breach on July the 31st. However, customers were told about the attack only on August the 9th. It says it needed this time to identify which customers had been affected. An Air New Zealand spokeswoman said that they were confident that all customers involved had now been contacted and that in line with best practice, Air New Zealand had notified the Privacy Commissioner of their investigation into a potential incident on the 31st of July. All customers affected will have received an email outlining the breach of information. Exposed data included information associated with members visible in internal documents. This varied by members, but could include details such as their airpoints number, their member's name and email. Passport details and other financial details are not impacted by the data breach. A very small number of limited passport details could have potentially been visible in internal documents should these documents have been accessed. The spokesperson for Air New Zealand did not provide details into how the phishing attack was successful, but said the company had apologised to customers for the inconvenience. We don't know if there were any further action by uh, any of the data commissioners across Europe in response to this data breach by Air New Zealand, but if we hear of any future news on this breach, we will of course bring it to you in an upcoming episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. As if Facebook wasn't giving them enough to do, the Irish Data Protection Commission has confirmed this week that it is currently assessing a data breach notification from Twitter after Twitter's misuse of data in Europe. Twitter has reported the breach to the Irish Commissioner as Twitter has its European headquarters in Dublin. 
and it's been obliged to send the commission a notification that users' data may have been mishandled. The commission confirmed in a statement that it had received a notification and was currently assessing the information provided and what further action was necessary. For its part, Twitter has been relatively quiet on this data breach, except to say that it had found issues with how it adhered to user privacy settings. The social media giant said this could mean it had shared user data with advertisers without receiving the consent of the users. Neither the regulator or Twitter were willing to enter into further discussion at the current time, and so we will bring you updates on this when we gather further information, either from uh, the Irish Data Protection Commission or from Twitter themselves. We will, of course, bring you those updates in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. Check us out on Facebook. Digital bank Monzo has told some 500,000 of its customers to change their PIN numbers, their personal identification numbers, after the Challenger Bank incorrectly stored them in its own internal systems. Monzo said that it had inadvertently copied around a fifth of its UK customers' PIN numbers to encrypted log files. These log files could only be accessed by Monzo engineers and were stored for up to six months. Nonetheless, the PIN numbers of course should not be available to anyone, even engineers working for Monzo. Monzo says it became aware of the PIN breach on Friday and rolled out an update on to the app the following day. By Monday, so we're talking Monday, the week just gone, by Monday it had deleted the incorrectly stored data and sent an email to those affected asking them to change their PIN. Monzo also recommends that customers update to the latest version of the Monzo app. Monzo said it was confident that nobody outside of the bank had access to the PINs and there is no evidence that any of the information has been used to commit fraud. We've checked all the accounts that have been affected by this bug thoroughly and confirmed the information hasn't been used to commit fraud, Monzo said. Monzo said it had now deleted all the information that had been stored in this way and they were confident that the changes in the latest version of the app would prevent any recurrence of this uh, data breach. If you are a Monzo user, you should update your app in the App Store or the Google Play Store. The latest versions of the app are iOS 2.59.0 and on Android 2.59.1. Monzo routine to stress that the issue affected less than 20% of UK's Monzo's customers. And if you've not been contacted by Monzo about this, then you don't need to worry. If you have been contacted by Monzo, then you need to change your PIN, and to do this you'll need to head to a cash machine to change your PIN to a new number of precaution. You can do this by putting your Monzo card into the cash machine, entering your old PIN, and choosing PIN services. Then choose select a new PIN, and change your PIN to a new number. Monzo said in the unlikely event that you see anything unusual on your account, please get in touch with them straight away, either through the in-app chat, or by ringing the phone number on your debit card. Monzo appeared to have reported the breach to the Information Commissioner's Office, the UK data regulator, within the 72-hour period stipulated under GDPR. The ICO said that they were aware of the incident involving Monzo and assessing the matter. It's thought that the ICO probably will launch an investigation into Monzo 
to see how the pin numbers came to be released because clearly keeping pin numbers secret is crucial to the operation of any bank. Monzo, which has no physical branches, is currently valued at around £2 billion. If we receive updates on the Monzo pin data breach, either from Monzo themselves or from the ICO, we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. While you are hopefully all aware of the need to satisfy a data subject access request within 30 days of receiving the request, it is of course paramount, and we emphasize this strongly in our training, it is of course paramount that you ensure that you are only releasing the data to the right person, be that either the data subject themselves or a proxy acting on their behalf, but a proxy who has clear written permission from the data subject. With this in mind, a researcher based at the University of Oxford, a gentleman by the name of James Perver, has carried out an investigation and he presented his findings at a recent Black Hat conference in Las Vegas. He set out to contact a range of organisations across the UK and the US to see how they responded to his request for information on behalf of a data subject, but rather than making a request on behalf of himself, he was making the request on behalf of his wife. About one in four of the companies contacted supplied him with the information requested. In each case, he asked for all the data they held. In one case, the response included the results of a CRB check. Other replies included credit card information, travel details, account logins and passwords, and indeed the person's full US social security number. Mr. Perver said that generally... The extremely large companies, especially the tech ones, knew exactly what to do and responded really well. Small companies, he said, tended to ignore him and just not provide any information at all. But the kind of mid-sized companies that knew about GDPR maybe didn't have the processes in place to handle the requests and therefore failed. He declined to identify which organisations had mishandled the request but said they had included a UK hotel chain that shared the complete record of his partner's overnight stays, two UK rail companies that provided records of all the journeys she had taken with them over several years, and a US-based educational company that handed over her high school grades, mother's maiden name, and the results of a CRB check. Mr. Prefer has, however, named some of the companies that he said performed well. Singled out for praise were supermarket Tesco, which demanded photo ID before they would release any information. The domestic retail chain Bed Bath & Beyond, which has insisted on a telephone interview. And American Airlines, which had spotted that he had uploaded a blank image to the passport field of its online form. Now, it is of course crucial that you do release the information within 30 days, but as we stress time and time again during our training, It's crucial that you only release it to the right people, otherwise you are actively committing a data breach and you lay yourself open to a claim for compensation from the person whose data you've released. So really make sure that you don't do it. Make sure that you 
know that the person you are requesting the information for, that either you are dealing with the person themselves, or you are dealing with someone acting on their behalf, a proxy acting on their behalf, but who has clear written permission, signed permission, from the data subject to release the data to them. In this case, Mr. Verber's partner had given him permission to carry out the tests and helped him write up the findings, but otherwise did not participate in the operation. For correspondence, the researcher created a fake email address for his partner in the format first name hyphen middle initial hyphen last name at gmail.com. He then sent an accompanying letter which reminded the recipient that they had 30 days to respond. It added that he could provide additional identity documents via a secure online portal if required. This was a deliberate deception since he believed many businesses lacked such a facility and would not have the time to create one. And in our experience, we suspect that in that he is probably right. He carried it out in two waves. For the first half of those contacted, he used only the information detailed above. But then for the second batch, he drew on personal details which had been revealed by the first group to answer follow-up questions. The idea, he said, was to replicate the kind of attack that could be carried out by anyone, starting with just the details found on a basic LinkedIn page or other online public profile. If the organisation asks for a strong type of ID, such as a passport or a driver's licence scan, Mr. Preferred declined. He also decided not to create forgeries of more easily fake documents. So, for example, he would not sign documents saying he was the data subject, nor would he send emails with spoofed headers when asked to write from the victim's registered account. But he did try to convince the companies to accept documents that would theoretically be easy to mock up but in this case could be sourced from his partner. So when one train operator asked for a photocopy of a passport, he convinced it instead to accept a postmarked envelope addressed to his partner. In another case, a cyber security company agreed to accept a photograph of a bank statement which had been redacted so that the only information left on the view was the target's name and address. Sometimes such subterfuge was unnecessary. One online gaming company asked for the applicant's account password, but on being told that it had been forgotten, Mr. Perver said it disclosed his partner's details anyway without asking for any alternative verification. Mr. Perver said that a total of 60 distinct pieces of personal information about his partner were ultimately exposed. These included a list of past purchases, 10 digits of a credit card number, its expiry date and issuer, and their past and present addresses. In addition, one threat intelligence firm provided a record of breached usernames and passwords that it held on his partner. These still worked on at least 10 online services as she'd used the same logins for multiple sites. In one case, the GDPR letter was posted to the internet after being sent to an advertising company which constituted a data breach in itself. When the letter was posted to the internet, it still clearly showed the person's name, address, email and phone number. Luckily, it only had very simple data, said Mr. Perver, and of course he'd made up the email address just for the purpose of this survey anyway. But you can imagine what would have happened had someone sent the letter with more detailed information. Overall, of the 83 firms known to have held data about his partner, Mr. Perver said, 
24% supplied personal information without verifying the requester's identity. 16% requested an easily forged type of ID that he did not go on to provide. 39% asked for a strong type of ID. 5% said they had no data to share, even though he knew that his partner did have accounts controlled by them. 3% misinterpreted the request and said that they had now deleted all their data. And 13% appeared to ignore the request altogether. And those results don't really surprise me, I have to say, but they do emphasise the need for continued education amongst your staff. It is really, really important that your staff know what a data subject request looks like, how to action it, how to verify it, how to make sure you're only releasing the information that's been requested, and how to do all of that as productively as you possibly can, whilst maintaining a good image for your company or your organisation. And we do a training dedicated to this, so if you would like some training for your staff on dealing with data subject access requests, please do contact us at podcasts at insurety.co.uk, that's E-N-S-U-R-E-T-Y.co.uk, and we'd be delighted to arrange some training for you, either on-site or off-site via Zoom video conferencing. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. A survey conducted by business process outsourcer Parsec has discovered some interesting statistics on how London businesses are struggling to handle an upswing in personal data access requests since GDPR came into force. The research, which was conducted following the first anniversary of GDPR, showed that almost two-thirds of London firms, 62%, had seen an increase in data access requests from customers and their own employees in the 12 months following the introduction of GDPR in May 2018. More than 13% of businesses in the capital had experienced an increase of more than 50% in the volume of requests. 87% of firms said that they'd seen an increase in requests reported that they'd found effectively responding to them challenging, citing the cost in 58% of cases and complexity in 55% of cases as the biggest obstacles to providing the information which had been requested. 40% of businesses in London said that they'd experienced an increase in data access requests with a reliance on paper documentation being a barrier to fulfilling those requests. As we've already mentioned in this episode of the GDPR Weekly Show, under GDPR, individuals can submit a data subject access request free of charge to receive a copy of the personal data that your organisation holds on them, along with information on factors such as why their personal data is being used, how it's used, how it's processed, etc. In general, GDPR requires that organisations must respond to the subject access requests within one month, or in fact within 30 days. Chris Nader-Smith, Managing Director for Parsec, said, GDPR made it easier for people to access their personal data from organisations. With this power at their fingertips, we expected to see that data access requests would rise. However, the fact that so many London firms have struggled to respond to the surge in requests suggests that the pressure this has put on businesses is greater than was anticipated, or that many were simply unprepared for what GDPR would bring. What's particularly interesting is to see that so many businesses state a reliance on paper documentation as a barrier. 
Now, of course, it's true that paper documents can be a barrier because they are harder to handle, and maybe GDPR will act as the impetus for companies who've not currently adopted document management to move ahead and adopt document management. But clearly, that really depends on the volume of paper involved and how practical it is to digitise those documents. So it's not always as straightforward as it might sound. Of those companies that Parsec found were looking to digitise their documents, they found that improving data privacy was the biggest driver for 51% of those companies, and complying with GDPR was the biggest impetus for 49% of the companies. However, only 5% of the companies who responded said they digitised all the personal documentation they held in the year prior to GDPR's introduction. This has risen slightly to 7% in the last 12 months. London firms that didn't digitise all their paper documents containing customer employee information in the year before GDPR came into force cited the maintenance of archiving facilities to store paper documents, 44%, and the cost, 42%, as the biggest barriers. Following GDPR's implementation, the maintenance of archiving for 40% and complexity for 38% of companies were the biggest barriers, compared with a lack of staff resource, which was the reason cited by 37% of companies surveyed as to why they found it difficult to satisfy requests in time. And of course, this is a, where GDPR does have a bit of a double-edged whammy because on the one hand, you only have 30 days to provide the information to data subjects making the request. On the other hand, where you used to be able to charge £10, which okay was a fairly nominal fee, but which would be enough to deter the, how shall I put it, casual seeker, of personal information. Of course, now under GDPR, you can't charge at all for providing information unless the request is too frequent or is clearly vexatious. And so some interesting figures there out of this survey and perhaps some that we'll return to in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show and look at how we can help you as a company to organisation to satisfy data subject access requests within 30 days without it causing too much stress within your organisation and, of course, enabling your organisation to carry on functioning and making money um, or performing the service that your organisation is there to provide. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I hope you found it useful. I hope you found it entertaining. Please do let me know. Let me have your feedback by sending an email to podcast.insurity.co.uk. You can find out more about us at Insurity at www.insurity.co.uk. And I look forward to speaking to you again, same time, same place, next week. Have a good week, everybody, and remember to keep your data safe. Check us out on Facebook. The GDPR Weekly Show is an Insurity production. Follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash insurity.